0: We have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's australiangeographic.com.au Forward slash talking Australia. Hello, I'm Chrissy Goldrick and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Today I'm talking to Ron Allen. Ron is the man who built the sub that got James Cameron to the bottom of the ocean. He's also a pioneering cave diver with many records to his name. Ron will share his unique journey from ABC radio engineer to adventurer, explorer and inventor. So I'm thrilled to be talking to Ron Allen on this episode of Talking Australia. Ron, you're a pioneer of undersea exploration. Um, this is really the great undiscovered realm right here on the Earth. We seem to know more about outer space than we do about the oceans on our own planet. So why do you think we've been so slow to explore this like whole other realm right here on our own, virtually on our own doorstep here in Australia?
1: Uh, the underwater world is a <coughs> quite a different world, um, uh I think one of the things that's held everything back is um, you don't have radio frequency waves penetrate the water. So without communications, we haven't ventured very far. Um, But there has been some uh, advances with um, uh, acoustic communications, and I believe that um, more recently has helped.
0: And I guess that's the thing about space. That's actually how we do communicate in space is through radio telecommunications. And in fact, yeah. I think really the, um, the, 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 all of the kind of advancements that were made in the 1960s, those advancements were made because of improvements in radio in radio telecommunications. That's really the sort of the technology that pushed the space race along.
1: Yeah, I absolutely. People are focused there because of communications, um, like even the unmanned vehicles. Um, We're not really autonomous per se, but really remotely controlled. And that was done through radio waves. Um, Nowadays, there's more into autonomous uh, or autonomy. Um, So you, you are now less dependent on the radio waves. But with more and more vehicles out there, you have to become more autonomous.
0: But taking you back um, to where you began, um, it was really in sound recording, in in broadcasting, it was as a sound engineer that you you got your start. Is that right, with the ABC back in the 1970s? Yeah,
1: I started at the ABC in late 1965. Wow. Yeah, I did a five-year technician in training program. Um, And I do remember being in master control when you know, man first landed on the moon. Yes. So, yeah, I do remember oh, yeah. being in master control for that event. Oh. And I also remember working on the standards conversion because at the time uh, the US were NTSC, um, you know, Australia had their PAL system, and the standard had to be converted. And it consisted of a camera in front of a special monitor.
0: So, were you in Sydney for that? Was that where yeah. that took place? Yeah. And how old would you have been then? You must have been just a lad back then.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's probably, yeah, cracking 20. <laughs> yeah, so was
0: that like an apprenticeship that you would have done more or less straight out of mm. school? And tell me about, so you're, you're from Sydney yes. and you went to school uh, in Sydney. And was this something, I mean, did you feel sort of drawn to that kind of a career? Is it something that runs in the family? Where did all the sort of technical kind of know-how or interest in that side of things come from?
1: No, my dad's very much an engineer, yeah, and I'm not quite sure why I never followed in his footsteps, um, but instead um, I was just offered a uh, like a cadetship, yeah, you know, with the ABC, and yeah, so that's the career path I chose. Mm. Um, yeah, I thought thought that um, uh, having a, a a career where um, you know I actually get Paid to study and work was a great one. Um, I had my weekends where I could, um, I could either opt to work shift work and get better money, or I could, um, yeah, opt to um, have my weekends and uh, go caving and exploring.
0: All oh, right, so you were already <laughs> into the caving uh, by yeah, then. Yeah, so... yeah,
1: I really started caving before I did, um, yeah, got into scuba diving.
0: Right, and so this would have been... Um, so you would have been living in Sydney. So where would you have gone for, to, to find your nearest cave to go exploring? Where was that? Uh, I got
1: tied up with Sydney University's Biological Society. Um, yeah, and it was a small core group of people. Um, yeah, we did quite challenging uh, things because these people were involved uh, with universities... Uh, they combined some of their uh, subjects with caving. So, yeah, my best friend at the time, Rorick, our council, um, you yeah, know, he was studying geology. Yeah, so it was just, yeah, great fun going to the bottoms of caves to collect rocks. Um, yeah, we teed up with a, an, another very close friend, um, Dr. Julie James Venn, now professor now retired and a number of caves I went into to collect water samples for her chemistry
0: and, and when you went uh you know it's like it's not everybody's cup of tea is it to sort of descend into sort of dark caves what was it about um doing that that kind of I suppose captured your imagination because you went on from there uh, through the 70s and the 80s to actually um uh, crack some world records in caving. So, how did it all sort of go from you know starting out?
1: Now, a lot of the times, I think in one year um, I spent twenty six weekends going down to Bungonia caves, um, as I sort of mentioned with Julia. Um, you know, she was doing looking at the water, um, you know, quality and samples from the area, uh, trying to discover, you know, how the caves are formed, um, you know, what possible rainfall and, you know, the development of the caves. So, you know, we were going down routinely every second weekend to put, you know, dye and collect um, collection samples uh, from that area for 12 months. And yeah, it was just really exciting. It was sort of, I don't know, reason to go adventuring. Um, I think uh, having a reason is, is um,
0: yeah, yeah. You? you think you're contributing to yeah. the understanding and the Absolutely. science is really exciting. And did you have special gear in those days, or what sort of caving equipment? What was required apart from ropes and, I suppose, and? Yeah, um, um, I was fairly
1: early, but Tio you know, cavers started using uh, more waterproof uh, overalls made out of you know tough materials. Uh, I think Cordura was coming on the market. Um, Yeah, we'd have tailor-made wetsuits uh, for cold, wet caves. Um, I would still experiment with my own torches. I used to solder up my batteries with incandescent lamps. I always had the brightest torches, Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes the dullest because they'd go flat quicker. Um, But yeah, it was just an exciting um, period, starting to get into um, vertical caving. And we went from wire ropes, Two you know, single ropes where you'd abseil down and then prusik up, and yeah, you know, we developed. Um, I remember swinging off, um, yeah, you know, a few of the bridges in Sydney off single ropes, trying to develop techniques for, you know climbing back up again. And,
0: right. Yeah. So that's, I suppose, that's the thing. You're, you're defying gravity to come back up. So was that pretty groundbreaking, or I mean, was anyone else sort of doing that or pushing those boundaries uh, already in Australia? Yeah,
1: not. I don't think so I think it was uh, a lot of that was led um, you know in New South Wales. Um, we had some uh, more vertical caves um, It was certainly being uh, I suppose developed yeah you know, so you go on expeditions because uh, people were keen on going to New Zealand and uh, Tasmania where you've got some really big systems. Um, but also, you know, the Tasmanians themselves and New Zealanders were also, you know, developing their own systems.
0: Mm. And somewhere in that time you were called up.
1: Yeah, that was... Tell us
0: about that. <laughs> I didn't even know that was really happening. Was that, was that during the Vietnam campaign or...?
1: Yeah, it was... Um, <clears throat> I had deferred because of my studies with the ABC. They allowed me to finish my... Uh, technicianship, if you like. Um, But I had volunteered to uh, fill a position in Singapore.
0: So you had some choice about where you went?
1: I had a choice, yeah. I I volunteered. It's one of those things where you're not sure if you should volunteer for anything in the Army. Hmm. Um, Yeah, I just remember being called into a room. Um, I was just walking by, minding my own business. I was called into this room and there was another 30-odd people in there and they... Said, yeah, you know, they gave us every reason if you wanted to to walk out of this room. Um, we had been selected for some purpose. They didn't tell us what it was. They said, those that want to go, go. Those that want to stay, stay. And so I opted to stay. Um, it turned out that um, we had been then selected, um, you know to serve in Singapore um, with the um, yeah you know, the sixth Royal Australian Regiment.
0: So your sense of adventure, I can see, was <laughs> well and truly in place by the time that happened. So uh, Singapore, tell us about that. That's where you learned to scuba dive for the first time. Is that right?
1: Um, yes, it was. Um, yeah, the regiment um, had a lot of scuba equipment, but no one to teach anyone. I did find myself in Malaya, now Malaysia, for about six weeks, two months, um, and that's really where I learned to scuba dive. And it was with the British Sub-Aqua Club um, whilst we were um, just doing routine perimeter work around the Butterworth Air Base. And then when I returned to Singapore, we decided, a friend of mine, um, Alan and myself, decided that we would um, uh, reactivate this Uh, then defunct scuba club in the uh, regiment and that's what we did we came back as instructors
0: okay (laughs) and then you came back to Australia after that and tell us where so you had a bit of a crossroads then or you know what were you what what were you thinking
1: well one of the reasons I really got into the scuba diving was uh, to go cave diving you know I had purchased a tank and a regulator and yeah, you know, I thought, OK, I'll take a look at what it's like to go cave diving. And, you know, I picked some pretty grubby little holes up in or down at uh, Bungonia. And, yeah, I sort of thought, well, I better take this a little bit more seriously. Um, I ended up doing my instructors formally. Yeah, and <clears throat> the other thing I realised is that, um, you know, I had to earn additional income as an instructor to be able to afford the diving equipment uh, that went with uh, cave diving. A little bit after that, I made a move to South Australia. Um, and, yeah, that's when I sort of really got involved in, um, you know, diving Mount Gambier and, um, you know, other aspects of cave diving.
0: And was it the, um, the sort of the prospect of the Nullarbor possibilities that took you to Adelaide or was it, was it the job
1: uh, I'd already visited um, the Nullarbor in 68 um, as a dry caver um, yeah, we went to some of the lakes all the caves that contain lakes and you know, just free swimming in these lakes with a face mask and just seeing a passage wave it just goes on and on and on it um, was certainly temptation for me to, um, to pack up and move to Adelaide and you know, get more involved and serious with diving and scuba diving and, and especially uh, cave diving.
0: We'll take a quick break and be back in a moment. We have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. Just explain uh, for anyone that doesn't know what it is about the Nullarbor that makes it such a sort of mecca for caving and for cave diving.
1: What a, a lot of people don't realise is that you can drive from Adelaide to Perth and not cross a flowing river because all the rivers are underground. And, you know, either the riverbeds are dry or they're underground and uh, Across the Nullarbor, um, you're 100 metres. The plain is bone dry, um, you know, the occasional, you know, saltbush, um, occasional, you know, you know, scrubby tree or something, little outcrops here and there. Um, but, yeah, underneath the plane itself is this labyrinth of uh, waterways.
0: Cocklebiddy Cave is probably the most famous one. Mm. I think people have heard of that one. And that was the one where you actually broke a world record back in 1983. Do you want to tell us a bit about that expedition and, and, and what happened? And, and I guess we're going to come back to your engineering know-how and your ability to problem-solve and, and how you brought that to bear, really, on an expedition like that.
1: Yeah, I think one of the... Um, yeah, biggest dives of all time was actually the year before, and it's just 1982. Um, we had joined up with a West Australian group, uh, Hugh Morrison, a Victorian group with Pete Rogers, um, myself from uh, South Australia then, um, and, yeah, a few extras. But um, that was it was really a West Australian trip. I wanted to, you know, dive deep into um, Cocklebitie Cave. And... We had a hell of a lot of gear. We had a few plastic plumbing pipes, and the West Australians had brought all this out um, as a means to getting, uh, to carrying all the equipment out. And it was very cumbersome, very awkward. Um, and um, even so, we, were, we, we uh, had, had dived to the first rock pile and there's a, a second dive, and it was that second dive that we're most interested in. And we were prepared to uh, travel out, I think, for at least two and a half, three hours in one direction, um, assuming that we would stay at the same depth and it didn't get cold, um, that we would then turn around and come back. And we got out to about two and a half, um, half kilometres or... Two and a half mile. <laughs> it's going back to the old imperial days. But, um, yeah, um, at least two and a half kilometres. And we kilometres, and we're at that one third point where divers or cave divers would turn around, you know, leaving a third of your air for the return and then one third for emergency. And then we looked up and we saw the reflection of a, a lake further into the cave. So defying all the rules, we... We went for the uh, reflection, and lo and behold, there's a near chamber. So that gave us a uh, an added degree of safety.
0: And just um, tell, just going back to that, so in the, the 2.5 miles or kilometres, whatever we were <laughs> swimming, is were you actually swimming through? Is that actually yeah, are you swimming yeah. the whole time? Yeah,
1: we were finning with we yeah. uh, fins and and
0: you're wearing scuba gear.
1: Uh, we had three, four tanks on our back, and we had uh, this makeshift sled. Uh, that we could breathe uh, from and you're um, just
0: dragging that along
1: sort of. and we were sort of pushing it it was cumbersome it didn't have a lot of buoyancy control um, we had to actually undo the, on the way back we had to undo the valves of the tanks to flood them because uh, it was getting too light um, we had to make them heavier um, we didn't have a buoyancy control that we needed so it was quite um, not touch and go it was just um,
0: yeah, but you, yeah. you come through to a chamber and can you just come out of the water and breathe the air? I mean, is the air breathable in a chamber like that? Has it not been trapped there for millions of years or... What's um, it like? What's the smell of? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Some of the caves on Nullarbor um, you know, are high in carbon dioxide levels uh, and you can usually detect that by, you know, immediate onset of being out of breath and, you know, the, the development of headaches.
0: Right, Um, you get signs. Yeah,
1: and it tends to be a more warmish, humid atmosphere inside the cave. So you get to sort of realise that yeah, this area is not the best. Um, We have dived in some where we would continue to take the occasional breath um, with the scuba gear just to, yeah, get that extra get energy. the mix yeah, into it's it. probably maybe similar to altitude sickness in a way. Oh,
0: okay. Not yeah.
1: necessarily sickness, but that short of breath, um, you know, the headaches, uh, mm. that sort of thing. Right. But Toad Hall, as we called it, seemed quite uh, okay to breathe. Um, it smelled okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, we sort of um, swum an extra, you know, 100 metres to the where the rocks would come out of the water and then we proceeded to climb the um, what looked like a mountain of rocks in front of us um, you got to remember no one's ever been here before and these rocks have fallen from a ceiling and it'd be like walking on a pile of bricks that someone's just dropped you know um, without disturbing the bricks you know because you would step onto a, a big rock and it would um, tilt move. and mm. move and that mm. one could release that one over there and yeah. it wouldn't Go. have created an avalanche but you know, there's this settling and as we would walk on it you know, things would settle and you know, the more and more that people would travel the same route then you know, the safer and more stable, more stable it became mm. yeah, so we were quite careful on that occasion but you know, we did uh, climb this um, huge uh, rockfall um, traversed the top of it and we sat at the top and we looked down and there was another lake.
0: Oh, on the other side yeah. of it. Oh my goodness. Yeah, and were, yeah, you, it, were you thinking then, I wish I'd brought like twice as much <laughs> oxygen with
1: me? Yeah, well, the thing is, you know, we were already um, at our turnaround point. You know, we'd pushed it a, a little bit, but we knew we had an air chamber. So, um, although, you would know, people find us is another thing. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we decided then that um, this time next year we're coming back with more and more equipment.
0: I mean, I guess that's the thing <coughs> that, that... That's the draw card of it, isn't it? Because you just, you just keep pushing down and further and further and around, you never know what to expect around any particular bend of, of, of an adventure like that. Mm. And to know that no-one's been there before except you, you're the first people to see it, I mean, it must be such a buzz to do that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: when we went back in... Three, um, well, I had developed the, um, the sled you know, so that we could uh, carry, I think it was an additional 14 scuba cylinders. Um, we had proper buoyancy control for it. Um, we had spare regulators, long hoses, so we could control the buoyancy and breathe air from the sled. Um, and we also had containers, even though I just a sewage pipe, um, you know, with screw end caps, <clears throat> but it was only fairly shallow, so we could get away with that. Um, and we, you know, we decided that we would stay overnight in Toad Hall. Right. Okay, so we had uh, space blankets, thermo um, rest mattresses, you know, real luxury items. We so went
0: camping <laughs> deep under the and, ground Yeah,
1: we took, um, you know, little you know, gas burning stoves and, um, and also. Um, our own um, tubes for waste, <laughs> right. so we it, it took out you everything, know, with everything you. that we <laughs> took in.
0: So this was the so this is the Cockabiddy Cave dive, which mm. actually where you went further than anybody had before. Mm. And was that was that record that you'd gone further underground than anyone anywhere in the world, or was it actually a, a world um, record on, <clears throat> on Nullarbor Plain? What was that I think there
1: was a few cave divers at the time um, that were starting to push. Yeah, frontiers. I think that um, yeah, we were claiming the the longest distance in a straight line from the cave entrance, Um, and yeah, I don't know that it was six point two five something kilometres, but we were actually um, uh, pipped by a French team um, who came back and said. Uh, oh, you needn't, needn't bother. The cave ends. It's six point two kilometres. Um, anyway, it was uh, yeah, both myself and Pete Rogers got to this um, this point. Uh, we both progressed a little bit further, and it was Hugh Morrison and another two hundred metres. And this is at the point where this French diver had said, "No, the cave does not go any further. The cave ends." And yeah, you know, I'm if there's the slightest hint that a cave will keep going. Um, I will never ever save that A cave ends. Mm. Yeah, it's just.
0: No, it sounds like you, you to know me...
1: someone is going to go there and push it. Yeah, and yeah, even if you have to move, yeah, rocks. Yeah, somebody's going to do it. Yeah, and um, yeah. So to me, a cave never ends. It keeps going. And
0: um, so to go to go further, does that mean you're starting to squeeze through very small spaces? Yeah, absolutely. But? Yeah. And that's, uh, I guess, you, then you really don't know. I mean, are you really kind of contorting the body to get through some of those small spaces? And are you, are you, when you when they go through them, do they think that they might get stuck coming back, or is, well, how does that work? Yeah, they tend
1: to be uh, become lower and flatter. Yeah. Um, so you really have to just you know skinny your body up. <laughs> yeah. Um, you don't eat. Yeah, for a you few start. Days. <laughs> um, you start using. Um, well, you. It, Cave diving equipment has now involved, evolved so that you wear side mounts so they're, they're, they out uh, towards the side. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of the serious cave divers, they won't wear tanks on the back unless it's just purely for you know, carrying that bulk um, mm. air to get somewhere.
0: Mm. Um,
1: and you know, even nowadays, you know, instead of um, open circuit uh, scuba, they're now using re um, yeah, rebreathers that have... Um, your oxygen sensors that you know, deliver a certain amount of gas, so you got a lot more endurance on your um, mm. uh, on your breathing apparatus.
0: And jumping ahead a little bit, then, um, but in 1988, you um, undertook the Panic Plains Cave expedition, and that was actually sponsored by Australian Geographic. Um, And we've got a a story back in, I think it's like, whatever, issue 19 or something with fantastic um, uh, illustrations of the or Some of the innovations that you brought to, to that expedition, but that expedition didn't quite go according to plan. It's, uh, uh, it didn't all go... It's just show, showing you that not all these expeditions actually go according to plan, but it's actually how you respond to that when it happens that it uh, makes the difference between mm. success and failure. So tell us a little bit about that that, that kind of rather famous uh, yeah. moment in cave diving history.
1: Yeah, um, I look, yeah, it was there's... Um it was more of an international uh, trip. You know, we had a British cave diver, Rob Palmer. We had um, American Wes Skiles and his, um, his wife, Terry Skiles, um, both renowned you know, divers. Um, and, you know, we... Uh, to be able to go to the... Um, it was a deeper cave. Um, we needed more resources. Uh, we decided to use... Um, uh, what we call aquazeps, which are underwater uh, dive scooters uh, we decided to use our sleds that we built for cockle witty uh, going back 83 um, you know, to get the volume of equipment through um, we had to beef up the tubes because on the first dive one of the tubes collapsed with all our um, camping equipment in it um, because it was deeper, we had to do decompression. So we had to use, um, uh, or carry different gases for decompression and we had to get them into the, the, like the first rock, um, rock pile, uh, where we, where we sort of staged, um, a camp for, for, um, for the rest of the expedition. So there's quite a number of divers involved. We were also making a, uh, friend of, um, Mine, Andrew White. It was really his expedition. Um, he decided that if we um, tried to get sponsorship, um, we could ma- and make a film. Yeah, you know, we could have all the equipment we want. Might get some cash out of it. We don't know, but um, at least we could put whatever we get, yeah, you know, into um, equipment and the uh, exploration. But the downside of that is we had to make a film, so um, yeah. Hence, we had uh, Wes Gulls, uh, Rob Palmer, yeah, a few other, um, you know, sound recorders, uh, people like that.
0: So but you had a big team going down there. Yeah, was like a whole yeah, crowd of you. I think no, no, it
1: must have been a team of about twenty odd people right, went out. They, yeah. Went out to the Nullarbor and we were camping out the Nullarbor for about three, four weeks. Um, but when it, uh, I suppose you know, getting back to the event that happened. Um, and it, it was. It was um, a very unscheduled, unlikely um, cyclonic uh, thunderstorm that happened on the Nullarbor. Um, we estimate something like, you know, 200 millimetres of rain fell in less than an hour. Um, and, of course, these caves, um, you can't really tell... Um, Yeah, without the other light, but um, these are in low depressions. And when you get this immense amount of water uh, on the surface, it has to go somewhere. And it doesn't go straight into the ground. On this occasion, it it found its way to the lowest point, and that was the entrance to uh, Panicum Plains Cave.
0: And that, that was so, not, well, I think sometimes if we think about the entrances to caves, we think about sea caves, whatever, being on the side, but the entrance to this cave is really like a sinkhole on the surface, isn't it? So it's just a hole there waiting for all this water to come pouring down into it.
1: Yeah, look, the hole must be, I don't know, 10 to 15 metres in diameter. Mm. Um, when the water started coming in, um, Andrew described it as it was like a, a sinkhole, you know, water going down a sinkhole—it mm. was this massive,
0: like a big drain. Yeah, uh, yeah. but it,
1: uh, yeah, I imagine it's circula- circulating, but I don't think it was. But yeah, you know, it was certainly coming over the edge. It uh, was I've... all edges like yeah. a waterfall, like a
0: torrent. And so, by the time so... that storm hit, you were already in there, weren't you? The team was yeah, inside the um,
1: cave. we were in the process of bringing all the gear out of the cave. Um, I was still on the last dive. And I was actually uh, coming back out by myself, and had I come out probably twenty minutes later, I would have been hit by this wall of chocolate brown water, because as soon as the rain water uh, was rushing into the cave, hit the lake, it just turned it chocolate brown. You know, it was mm. so. You know, in some respects, I was very lucky not to have face this wall of water because I would not have known what was happening you mm. know? I thought oh god it might have been an, a um yeah a rock collapse in front of me um in which case I probably would have swum back to the um uh the safety of the um air chamber um but I noticed that there's a lot of uh lights and a lot of people coming down the rock pile and I had no idea. You know, I didn't expect a welcoming party, but that's what it almost seemed like. Mm. You know, there's all these people coming into the cave and then we started hearing the rocks falling and the water rushing. And then the stories as the first people came said, you know, there's this, you know, the cave's flooding. It's, there's this cyclone outside. It's devastating. And
0: Did you realise at that
1: time that you were all trapped? You were trapped there? <laughs> it was, you know you're trapped because you can hear the rock pile moving and when you hear boulders the size of cars falling you think I'm not going anywhere near the exit or the entrance to the cave so we were quite happy to stay put in the safety of the cave and you know just waited out and yeah you know, one or two hours went by and it was still moaning and groaning and this cascading water that we um, that we decided that we had the cave radio, which I had developed for uh, Cocklebeady Cave as well uh, back in 1983. <clears throat> and we'd made a routine um, uh, radio sh- schedule uh, of every four hours. So it was coming eight o'clock in the evening and we should have all been out of the cave and um, you know, enjoying you know, a meal um, or something, uh, but instead, you know, we found ourselves, you know, still, still inside the cave. Um, but at the same time, um, the there were a few people on the surface. Um, they had the foresight to um, set up a, a cave radio on the surface at 8 o'clock. Which and, was
0: your schedule, was that your schedule? Which was our yeah. sh-
1: scheduled time. It wasn't a scheduled, yeah, broadcast because we were all supposed to be out, but... Um, but because it was a scheduled time, we just decided, well, let's give it a go. And we just decided that uh, having heard the description of what happened outside, uh, we decided that, you yeah, know, look, there's nothing we can do now. We're safe. Um, you're safe. The storm's gone. Um, yeah, let's have the next radio schedule, 8 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and that's what we did.
0: And and were people, so, you know, did they yeah. were they pretty confident? Were they calm and knew that... if. The water settled down. That there was a good chance we were going to get out. Oh yeah, was yeah. It? Just Look, Because had, you, was, you had all that experience between all of you, and
1: yeah, we had enough experienced people to know. Yeah, um, but what uh, I didn't know at the time was um, what was happening on the surface, and the storm had hit Cocklebiddy uh, service station and had ripped the roof off a service station. It had flattened signs on the highway um, and a little bit later the owner came out to the cave site, sorry to the campsite where we had located because he he knew of the expedition and we were reporting and yeah, going in there, having an the occasional sly shower, yeah, oh. <laughs> uh, just to freshen up a bit, um, maybe. Uh,
0: Gotta love an outbound roadhouse, right <laughs>
1: haven't you? Yeah, fueling up for the <laughs> compressor, for the yeah, filling tanks. So yeah, it was, they, they became um, yeah really friends out there, yeah. and uh, yeah, he was concerned for our safety because they'd been flattened. Um, didn't matter, but he lost a roof of his um, garage and hotel. Uh, he came out to check on us and. Um, but had also alerted the authorities that, you know, Cyclonic Storm is a group of cavers trapped underground. So it started a big um, rescue um, mission um, from the West Australian police. Um, You know, and we had um, aircraft come in overnight that um, landed on the highway, um I had the roadside patrols, you know, stopping cars so that aircraft could land with the rescuers.
0: Right, so they'd land um, on the air highway, would they? Is that literally,
1: yeah. <laughs> 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 and, yeah, so, I, like, what was happening... About on the surface, is probably more interesting what was happening mm. underground.
0: You all, you all got out and you... Yeah. How... And did you continue... Was that the end of the expedition then? Did you all sort of go your separate ways? Yeah, uh-huh. pretty
1: much. We decided that, um, you know, to go back into the cave, um, you know, we ha- we'd have to leave our equipment there and, um, you know, we you know wait at least a few months for the yeah. cave to settle.
0: It all ended and, happily.
1: And, um, yeah, yeah, we all, all got out. We all got out.
0: That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia with Ron Allen. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at Geographic.com. or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia, you'll find special offers for our listeners including 10% of all products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time.